If you are staying up here with us, I'd invite you to take out your Bible this morning to the book of 1 John, and we'll be in chapter 3 today. Again, we've been working through our series together, and uh, this is going to be a unique Sunday, uh, not from a preaching standpoint, but just from a, a book of 1 John standpoint. Um, last week, there really was uh, kind of this, what I would consider a familiar thematic focus in John's writings. And it was just that uh, John's focus, I think last week, was that the life of the follower of Jesus should look different. Um, I really think that's what he's trying to get at last week, that that if we claim Christ, our our lives should actually look a little bit different, right? Not just from like an inward kind of introspective place, but also outwardly. If you remember, he really listened, I think, to three areas last week. And that was, they kind of gave us a truth that, that if you're a follower of Jesus, there's going to be friction between the life of the believer and just culture and the world. While why is because things are believed at from a baseline just fundamentally different. And so again, if you're a Christian today, that's what you claim, then, then what you're saying in some respect is uh, that life is, has purpose. Okay, so, so if you believe that life has purpose today, then you would fundamentally have a differing opinion than someone who thinks that we're just here by random chance, right? That, that, that's, a, that's a fundamental friction point. And so the truth is just that for the believer of Jesus, there will be friction in life. It's just going to be what happens. But I think he went on to encourage us and said, look, one day it won't be like this. That one day Christ is going to come back, he'll return, we're going to see him face to face, and the angst of just life on planet earth is going to be gone, and we'll have a whole new understanding of what it means to know our Savior. But he said, look, in the meantime, while you're living kind of in this already not yet in-between place, let me encourage you as a follower of Jesus that you, just, you can't have more markings of, of the world than you have markings of Jesus. So sin can't be more prevalent in, in, in your life than the work of Christ in your life. The habitual, ongoing sin shouldn't be part of who we are. And if it's our lifestyle that we're welcoming in, then we probably need to evaluate what's going on with our relationship with Jesus. And I think all of that last week was written really in hopes of encouragement by John. That John really wanted to see the people of Christ remain in Christ, and not just for a moment, not just for a season, but for all of the days on earth, so that they would persevere in the faith, they would bear fruit and have assurance of salvation. I think there are a couple ways that we as, as Christians really can be affirmed in our salvation, and not just hopeful. Perseverance of the faith and fruit of the faith are two ways that we can be affirmed that the Spirit has worked and is working within us. That was last week. At this point, John's writing begins a shift. All right, some have said uh, that this is just a, a convenient divide of the first half of 1 John and the second half of 1 John. It kind of gives a near content balance, even just as far as verse and chapters go. But really what John does is he begins to shift this by now a thematic focus. And so you're going to hear the focus of bringing just this idea of love to the front of the conversation. And we'll work out the rest of First John, and you're going to kind of hear this thematic focus of love resounding through his words. You didn't hear much about love last week, 
right? In the beginning part of chapter three, you heard about, and live with this truth, be encouraged, but be aware. And now we're going to shift. Like if, if all this is happening, look, love is going to be part of, of what we have in our lives. So we've got kind of that, that thought process and that context in mind. Let's, let's just read together 1 John 3, verses 11 to 18 this morning. This is God's word. And it says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brothers in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. Let's pray. God, as we just take uh, some time this morning to look into this portion of John's writings, I pray that you would give clarity, that you would accomplish exactly what you intend to accomplish this morning, and that our lives, our hearts, and our minds would be open to hear from you, ready to hear from you, expecting to hear from you, God. So we might better understand the fullness and glory of the gospel, how you work in our lives, and how we're to live as followers of Jesus. In your name, amen. Verse 11 hopefully sounds a little bit familiar to you, at least the phrase that's in there for you. All right, for this is a message that you heard from the beginning. Do you, if you've been here through our series, do you remember the last time you heard that? Where that was? Just look back a few verses maybe. Right, the beginning parts of chapter 2. He said, uh, chapter 2, verse 7, I'm writing you no new command, but an old command that you had from the beginning. Let's just try to jog your memory bank. Do you remember what that command was that John was referring to? That, that's not a new command. It's the old one that you had from the beginning. Do you remember what that was? We let, let the awkward ring just kind of hang in here for us. Okay, good. Love one another. There's a prior part to that. Okay, that's kind of the same thing, loving you as yourself. I'll give you a hint. Jesus said the whole law can be summarized in this. So it's love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. We kind of hear the same language that John uses again. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, right? Love God and love others. And so if you just had to guess broadly, what John might be referring to in the passage here that we're going to talk about, what do you think it might be? Love. See, John, fun, John has a fundamental starting point here, and it's one of love. And, and as I kind of walked through this, I kind of just thought through this over the week, I thought, well, this is certainly something that our world and our culture, at least outwardly, is very in favor of. Right? Our culture, I think, is completely in favor of love. Right, we, we, we hear it used in different things, right? Love wins was a phrase that was used 
uh, just last year as kind of a slogan piece uh, within our culture. There was uh, Rob Bell, uh, I don't know if you, I don't know what you want to call him, a uh, former church leader maybe, um, that kind of went off the rails, I think theologically, that was kind of his, his phrase he used to, his love wins, like in the end, don't worry, God's going to get ask grace to everybody and it's going to all be good. Um, but then you have, you know, eat, pray, love. So we're just going to use that word. Like, so culture, like I'm, I'm very clear, is okay with the word love. And we're, we're okay with the thematic focus of what that means even, perhaps. Um, but I wonder if it's actually this area of love and the definition of love is maybe one of the places of friction that John talked about last week. Remember John said, hey, don't be surprised that, that the world's not going to be a big fan of you. Now, I wonder if he kind of worked from that into love as if to say, like, look, this idea of love might actually be more of a friction point than of kind of an all-inclusive point. Again, our culture is completely in favor of love. But it, could it be that Scripture and its call for love is ex- not exactly what culture has defined love to be? So, so how would you finish this sentence? To love is to what? Blank. To love is to blank. I'm not giving her a golden answer here, by the way. I'm just curious how you'd finish that sentence out. What do you think is our culture has kind of adopted as a narrative of love? To be loving is to blank. What would you say? Something, how, how would you maybe finish that? Care for others, okay. Sacrifice, okay. For the needs of somebody else before your own. Okay. What was that? Understanding. Okay. You guys are thinking smarter than I was. I went a different direction with this as I thought through it. I came up with things like to love is to accept. If I love, then I accept. Or I love and I support. Or to, to love is to completely agree even. Right? So to love is to be all-encompassing. And we're going to wrap those up. Again, I'm trying to think through culture maybe and how we might define that. See, I think the reality is, if we're trying to figure out what love is, especially when John kind of talks about it here, the reality is it's going to be, I think, more helpful to seek out perhaps a biblical understanding of what love is than try to understand it within the culture. Because the culture is, is dynamic in its definition. And it's fascinating. It, it approaches the word love from all sorts of things. Right? Love, you can fall in it and also fall out of it. Right, right, love, it, again, I think is broadly, we've got to accept everything in all ideologies, all thought processes, all philosophies. And if, if you don't, then you're not very loving, actually. But I wonder if Scripture is really the better starting point. And then we filter everything else through that. And so 1 John 3, for me, actually is a, is a fantastic launching point to try to figure out what is this love that John's talking about. If you remember, verse 11 and 12 said this, For this is a message <coughs> excuse me, that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil, and his brothers were righteous. That's a fascinating place to me to start out. See, we know that this idea of love is directed towards God and towards others, right? That, that, that was that old command, new command idea that he gave, love God and love others. And now we get this contrast that John gives us here of Cain. And Cain versus Abel, specifically. Right? Who was Cain and Abel? They were sons of Adam and Eve. 
And the story of them is actually fairly minimal in the book of Genesis. We'll look at really five verses and then kind of a concluding verse. So Genesis chapter 4, this is just who Cain and Abel were. Verses 1 through 5 says this, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore another, Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought to the Lord of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And then if you jump to verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel's brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. This is so fascinating that John would go to this. But we arrive here at a point where this is the example given to us of who we shouldn't be like. Right? John said, John chapter 3, verse 12, we should not be like Cain. Cain, who in anger murdered his brother, is used as the example that John gives us of who we shouldn't be like. It's interesting that John didn't go to anybody else of Old Testament, right, figures. There's no Abraham, no David, right? David was not always loving. Jonah, not always very loving. Job wrestled with God's love, but he goes to none of those. He goes to Cain, what I would consider the initiator of violence, towards other human beings, the culprit of the first murder that we have here in the Scriptures. All this done as God still is seemingly making His known presence around humanity. So why would John do that? What's John's hope in all of this? In using Cain and the encouragement to not be like him. That we would, I think, his point is this that we would evaluate the condition of Cain. That we would look at Cain and look at the whole interaction between Cain and the Lord and Abel and evaluate not just Cain's actions, but what was it that led to Cain's actions. Ultimately, that we would consider the condition of Cain's heart. See, Cain's actions towards his brother, right, of, of taking a life, were birthed out of what? They're birthed out of bitterness. Cain was bitter, right? From an internal position of being rejected, right? His offering was rejected from God. And why? Because it wasn't his best. He didn't bring his best to the Lord. It was a matter of the heart. Abel, he says, about the, about the best he had. Ultimately, it was the condition of Cain's heart that was revealed in his actions towards Abel. And so what do we see here? What do you see from John? That God does not call for heartless and headless actions. When we think about love, and certainly the latter part of this portion we're looking at today gets to the tangible things. But I think right out of the gate, God does not call his people to headless and heartless actions. God does not look for you to simply be blind followers. God does not desire people to simply go to the motions and give the appearance of a life trusting him. That's what Abel or Cain did. Cain went through all the motions of apparently 
uh, acknowledging who God was, having reverence towards him. He brought a sacrifice towards him. But it wasn't connected with his heart and his head. See, I think God desires us to evaluate our lives in comparison to Cain's. He desires all of us, right? He desires our head, our heart, our soul, all of our strength. God desires his people to give all this to him. And if we're honest, I think, if we were so bold to say this, that's extremely hard at times. It's extremely hard sometimes to give Jesus our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength. I think it's sometimes easy to give him our soul, that, that eternal peace. I just, we can give that to him. We can trust that to him and trust that, that he would take and, and work it all together as he see fit. But when God says, look, I, I don't want just your soul. I, I mean, I want your strength and I want your your heart, I want all these things. It's all-encompassing, and that can be extremely difficult. See, I think at times we find ourselves really easily caught up between two places. We find ourselves caught up between heaven and earth, right? We live on planet earth. We have its concerns, its challenges, and its demands, and its thrills that just tug at us and pull at us. But at the same time, if we claim Christ today, Scripture says that we are citizens of heaven. That our fullest joys and our deepest longings can be, should be, and will be found in Christ and Christ alone. Scripture says that that we live in this middle place right now of God's kingdom. God's kingdom is here. It is active. It is alive. It is moving and shaking in the world. God's kingdom changes lives families, towns, and cities, calling people from darkness into light. But yet, as that currently exists, God's kingdom is not here in its fullest yet. How do we know? Because that call in your life for God to draw you to himself is hard. That heartache and sin and brokenness and death and cancer and fractured relationships and dreams that never come to fruition, that tells me that God's kingdom is not fully here quite yet. We live in this middle place. And it's challenging. And the drawing for your heart and my heart is rampant. See, the basic understanding of this passage, we need to understand that this is a call from John to remember that we were bought at a price. The fundamental piece, when we begin to understand love, what love is, and how it works out into our lives, we have to go back to the gospel. That you and I were bought at a price. And this price was the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The price we were bought at when we were in Christ was heavy. And its effects are meant to be significant. The effects of a life now trusting in Christ is meant to move into the daily, to the parts of our lives that walk and move around other people. 
And the application of the gospel was never meant to be left at just like a head or a soul level. It was meant to be worked out the surface of who we are. The gospel, the love of Christ is meant to be worked out as we live and move and breathe around people. And so we hear now the words of John that we actually need to wrestle with this. How do we actually love people? See, love is to be a tangible marker of a life that's marked with Christ. And we could just stop there, and I could close it up and walk away. And you'd have to wrestle with that, and I'd have to wrestle with that. Verse 14 tells us, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. We know. Again, I think that one of the greatest needs that you have and that I have stirring within you, man, you want confirmation, affirmation that you are Jesus's. I think that if you're a Christian today, you constantly want that. Because there are days where you don't feel like that. And you take hard looks inside, and you're kind of watching your life unfold, and you're like, I know I go to church, and I've, I've said a prayer maybe at one point, but I want confirmation. Lock, stock, and barrel. That, that this is a done deal. That I am Jesus, and nothing can take that away. Then pay attention to verses like verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Just says, look, we know. We're confident. We're established, we're rooted, we're secure. The foundation we stand on is not shifting, it's not moving. I am confident that we have passed from life, to, from darkness to light, from death to life. This is assurance that John gives us today. That if love is meant to be part of us. It's not culture's definition of love. It's not we love everything because to, to love everything is, is surely showing Jesus in my life. Like, no. I read an article this morning that was uh, based on Europe, and it's Europe's attempt to try to put age restriction verification on pornography on the Internet. And the government tries to, is trying to put into motion here, right, that, that, we should have, uh, that Europe should age verification before a minor could access pornography. It's actually a great idea. <laughs> and yet, there's massive pushback. And again, this is Europe too, right? But don't, we're not far behind Europe, just so you know. Okay, there's massive pushback because that's taking away, right, freedoms, there's potential for privacy to be revealed. If I have to put in, right, someone has to put in who they are and verify their age before they can access the product, what if somebody somehow hacks and get a list of all these people who are looking at pornography online? This didn't happen that long ago, right? There was that internet dating site that was basically just harboring mass places for affairs to take place. Ashley Madison. That got hacked, and all of a sudden this list was just published out of, of people in extramarital relationships. And we're, we're, the, the pushback to me is fascinating. Because one can make the case, well, 
outlook to do that is so unloving. Like, you're going to potentially have marriages get ruined if families find out that, that mom or dad are just habitually sucked in and addicted to pornography. And that was the whole perspective of this article, was that we need to be very careful for what could be undone in someone's life. As if to say, to hold somebody accountable for their choices and their actions, that's unloving. It was mind-blowing to me. It was chaotic to me. Like we're, we're, the world wants to take a stance that someone shouldn't actually be held accountable for their actions. That anonymity should be the greatest thing that they could have. I would be a very unloving parent if I did not hold my children accountable for their actions. Chuck a rock through a car going by. Hey, don't worry about it. No big deal. It'll be fine. Like, I would be called a bad parent. Like, DHS would be, can I talk to you, Mr. Hasty? So if we're looking for culture to define what love is, we need to caution ourselves. So to kind of bridle ourselves here against that. But when Scripture says, look, this is what it means to love. This is what it actually means when Jesus says, look, love your neighbor as yourself. And we should listen. We should listen with, with both ears perked up. Because love is a tangible marker of a life marked by the gospel. Conversely, verse 15 says, if hate is part of how we view our brothers in Christ, then the label of murder can be placed upon us, right? That's, that's kind of looking back as saying, remember the whole Cain and Abel thing? That label was condemning. Like Cain had immediate consequences for his murder actions towards his brother Abel. We should perk up everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Meaning, out of the depths of who you are, that, that, that action came out of Cain's depths and was then pressed forward onto Abel. Out of who you are, honestly, will bubble out eventually. Right? And I think John's obviously, I think, connecting here with Jesus' words of Matthew 5. He says, You have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. I like how the message puts it. Listen to this one. Same passage, but the message paraphrase here. You're familiar with the command to the ancients, do not murder. I'm telling you that anyone who is so much as angry with a brother or sister is guilty of murder. Carelessly call a brother idiot, and you just might find yourself hauled into court. Thoughtlessly yell stupid at a sister, and you're on the brink of hellfire. The simple moral fact is that words kill. Man, I like that. Because that resonates, that that. that that kind of drives home for me, that out of who I am, words will come out. And that really is revealing what's going on inside. Before we're able to run to a place of just self-affirmation, saying we've never murdered anyone, we've never gone that drastic, the words of Jesus remind us that anger and hate of a fellow believer are dangerous because they stem from the heart. 
And the heart has a way of manifesting itself into its actions. Again, Cain, our example in that. So before we run to just another justifiable existence of thoughts or opinions of each other that lead towards negative actions, we actually need to check our hearts on this one. Before we thoughtlessly yell stupid at a sister, a reminder, you might be on the brink of hellfire. This is the point of John's words here. The gospel does not allow us to be arrogant, but calls us to patience. Look, within the family of, of Jesus, we can have places of disagreement, but disagreement should not lead to resentment. But rather, disagreement, I think, is an opportunity for both conversation and the evaluation of one's own convictions. Jesus knows that we struggle that we will struggle, and that we will continue to struggle. There will be some who will try to convince you, as John mentioned earlier, that the gospel is false, the hope of eternity is foolish, and that even hope in Jesus today is like wishing on a shooting star. But I believe that John, in this passage, is trying to call you not only to check your heart, but to look at your lives and look and seek out moments of confirmation that the gospel has indeed changed you. The gospel has taken root in your life. That's a good thing. It's a good thing to search yourself for. It's a good thing to look back on the history of your days and years and say, man, where has Jesus worked in me? To see that fruit. And look, if you're in Christ, it's there. It will be. It may not be monumental. But by God's grace, there will be moments of hopefully freedom from bondage of things. There will be breaking from sin's hold in your life. There will be a greater kindling of love for, yes, people within the family of God and those outside the family of God. A love for them that's genuine because we're made in God's image. A love for them that's accepting of them, not based on their lifestyle or appearance, but we're, they're made in God's image, so we love them and we accept them. We don't have to affirm what they're living, but we, we accept them into our lives so that we can love them with the love of Jesus we have so that the gospel can go forward. <coughs> I think too often we're, we get polarized. say, man, I, that's so different from me can't possibly relate to that person. That's a pretty bold statement to make. It's a pretty unloving statement to make. There's nothing on planet Earth that you can agree on or come to some sort of common ground of conversation on. Really? Nothing? So we kind of put those blinders and those walls up. That, that's not what John's trying to get at today. How has the gospel taken root? How has it changed you? Love should be one of those primary things. In fact, he gives you here in verses 17 and 18 a tangible marker of that. Verse 17 and 18 says this, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And in truth. See, there is an outward work of the gospel in our lives. Simply, like we say in our house, see a need, meet a need. 
And that's a lot of times, honestly, it's like 90% internal. Meaning 90% of the time, that philosophy of see a need and meet the need is internal of our home, our walls. Because we have, are in a phase of life where the constant phrases that are used of, well, I didn't put it there. Well, I didn't make the mess. And we're just saying, look, look, just see the need, meet the need. Because we believe if we could drive that now at kind of the, the fundamental levels, we go, start going bigger and outside of our house, and that same philosophy hopefully kind of permeates up to the surface. See, one of the most tangible ways possible that you can look at your life and look at your heart and look at your motives is asking yourself, how do I respond to needs that I see around me? How do I respond? Yes, I think John contextually is talking within the church family right here. He uses the words like brother and sister. So that's kind of an indication. He's talking within the church family. See needs, meet needs. But I think that can and should overflow into our world, into our culture. The meat of needs, even when it's costly, is what John calls for here. Actually, maybe especially when it's costly. Those can be moments that the gospel is being affirmed in your life because it makes no sense from a humanistic, cultural standpoint. It takes place because our hearts are changed and we see human life as far more valuable than anything here on earth that we could possibly cling to. Like we see the soul as eternal. Your car is not, my home is not, my TV is not, my dog, I don't know about that one, right? But we see things as being temporal. I mean, he, he says it so practically. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how in the world does God's love abide in him? How is that? Like he's saying, how can you justify God's love within you, but you don't even mean a need of somebody else? Think of Acts 2 kind of our pinnacle example of the early church. What it looked like for believers of Jesus to live and do life together. And one of the kind of the notation marks about them, the, the scriptures about them, right? And they were selling their possessions and giving to all as any had need. So it wasn't like, Alan, I noticed you wore sandals today and it's only March, buddy. Let me give you my shoes. It wasn't like that simplistic even for the first church here. It was, I'm actually going to sell all of my shoes, so I'm going to buy you a brand new pair of shoes. I don't want you just to have my second best, because I have like 40 pairs in my closet, right? I'm going to get rid of them so you can have them. That was what was going on. And it was need-based, right? As they had, had need. What was a need? What was people presenting to them? You know what that takes? It takes community. It takes family. It takes church family. It takes you knowing well enough of what's going on in people's lives because your family, that, that you're listening and you're observing it and you understand what needs need to be met practically. The gospel does, does not call you to a theoretical faith that has no outworking in your life. It's the exact opposite. Because the gospel is so precious to you, it has to work out in everyday life. John calls us to love 
And he calls this love to be fleshed out in very tangible, everyday ways. It's done because we completely understand the very tangible way that love was shown to us through Jesus on the cross. And so then, we have to look at our lives and say, okay, we claim Christ. We fully understand the great sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, the lavish love that was given for us. And so we understand the gospel and that it has to affect and it has to impact how we live and move and breathe around people. See, we're called to love because we understand the love that was shown to us on the cross. First, foremost, primary. That's a fundamental thing to be Christian. We understand that Jesus' love is not just theoretical. It's so tangible. His life and death and resurrection are tangible to us. The shedding of blood so that we can be forgiven and restored to our Creator is tangible expression of love, and it speaks volumes to us. And this is exactly what God is calling us to do. To love in tangible ways. Listen, practically speaking, application speaking, I think if we just move to, to listening well, we would move to meeting more needs. Sometimes it might be large, meeting large needs, being willing to help in humongous ways. But listen, sometimes it's just listening. It's listening and knowing that a homemade meal can go a long ways. And perhaps this meal is being given not because a person can't cook for themselves, but because it shows that you just thought of them. And you thought you heard that life was hard, the week was exhausting, the day was busy. I'm just going to make you a meal. Simple. But that motivation is a motivation out of love. It's not saying, look, I, look you can't cook good things. Let me make you something real quick. No, it's saying, look, I, I just want to be a blessing to you. And if you had dinner already in the oven, just save this one. No big deal. Sometimes it is listening to the financial stress and being able to help alleviate that for individuals. Maybe, church, it's that we change from saying to ourselves, you get what you deserve. And we start to think of our own lives as being shown the grace that God gave us, even though we deserve far worse in his wrath. All of this. All of this stems from the heart. Do you remember the story of Cain and Abel? Don't miss this. Cain brought something. So Abel brought his best. Cain didn't show up and say, oh man, this is awkward. I didn't didn't bring anything, God. No, Cain brought something. The issue is not his, his actions. The issue is not his outward doing. The issue was not his lack of doing something that brought condemnation onto him. The issue was his heart. Cain's heart was not moved or convinced of the importance of God in his life. 
It was not moved or convinced of the importance of God in his life. He was not convinced that it was a tangible way to show the importance that God has. Look, church, love is a very tangible way to show the importance that Christ has in our lives today. The call for us today is very clear, in my opinion, from 1 John 3. That we are to love in deed and in truth. That that is to be a marker of who we are, individually and collectively. We're to be known for our love, lavish love. That is not all accepting. It's not all proving. It's a love that's radical. A love that sees people made in God's image, that sees the beauty of, of the cross of Jesus that we're going to celebrate in just a few weeks in Easter season. And that we, we understand, man, that, that was huge love poured out for us. How can we help but love others? This is what John calls us to. He says, look, love will actually be a marker that you've been redeemed. That's huge. It's not how do we do it the least amount, I don't think. It's how do we show this love to our fellow brother and sister and to our world. Affirmation. How has God changed you? How has he worked in you? How is he calling you even right now to tangibly love other people? And then as he does that, don't get all downtrodden on yourself, like, oh, I wish I would have done it 10 months ago. You didn't. You don't owe a time machine. You can't go back and undo it. Stop. Praise the Lord. He's stirring in you now. Praise the Lord. He's actually stirring in you, maybe even right now, of a tangible way to show love and grace and mercy and compassion to somebody else. That's the evidence of the Spirit's work in your life. That should excite you. Because God's not done with you yet. Let's pray. Jesus, just help us to know how to best work this out into our lives. Help us to know how to best uh, understand the gospel and your lavish love shown to us on the cross and then how we can then, we can't help but show that love to other people. Help us know how to tangibly do that, practically do that, not just theoretically. Help us to get out of our laziness or to get out of our funk or whatever we're in, we would actually live out in obedience to John's words here today. Lord, please help us.